You guys, we have some excellent and exciting news for you. How Stuff Works has an all-new app featuring all of the amazing content you have come to expect from us. As well as all of our other podcasts, including Stuff You Should Know, Stuff You Missed in History Class, Stuff to Blow Your Mind, all of your favorite stuffs are in one brand new How Stuff Works apps. And you can listen to all our episodes from way, way back. We've got more than 600 for you to listen to. But that's not all. You can't forget that we have articles, quizzes, videos, and it's all searchable. And it's available for your Android and iOS. You can just head over to the App Store or to Google Play to get it today. Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. are both in for a treat for Caroline's conversation with music producer extraordinaire Sylvia Massey, who is also coming out with a new book. That's right. It was a treat to talk to Sylvia. Uh, she's sort of a legend in the industry. She's been known for not only her producing, but also her engineering and mixing. She's worked with an incredible range of artists, too. Everybody from Prince and Johnny Cash, who we'll talk about during uh, in the interview, but also Tool and System of a Down. So she, this is not uh, a folk music producer by any stretch, but she's received more than 25 gold and platinum records, including for her work with the Red Hot Chili Peppers and even Tom Petty. So there's that incredible range of artists. And Caroline, how did you first learn about Sylvia? Um, I first heard about Sylvia through my boyfriend, who is also a record producer and engineer, and he recommended that she would be an incredible person to talk to, not just about the industry, because she certainly is an incredible resource for people who are interested in the music industry and being record producers, but also somebody who has a really great take on gender and what that means for that role. Well, I would imagine that Sylvia is one of a select few female record producers and engineers. I mean, it's a pretty male-dominated industry within the industry, right? Yeah, for sure. And I did ask her why she thought that is, why there are such a limited number of women in the role behind the control board. And so let's let Sylvia explain it for herself. And so without further ado, let's hear from Sylvia Massey. All right. Well, Sylvia, welcome to the podcast. And uh, I was wondering if we could get started uh, just having you introduce yourself to our listeners and tell them a little bit about what you do for a living. All right. My name is Sylvia Massey, and I'm a record producer. I've been doing it for about 35 years. Um, uh, and, uh, yeah, I'm currently living in Ashland, Oregon, um, recently moved here from California. Okay. So what, what brought, brought the move on? Oh, a number of things. Uh, well, it was a divorce and, uh, and, uh, greener pastures. Well, you know, our listeners are always interested to hear about the avenues that people took to get where they are. Um, so I wanted to ask where your interest in music and especially in tinkering with electronics came from and how you got your start. Okay, well, um, I uh, started uh, basically in college in Chico, California. Um, 
where I uh, was a, a DJ on the college radio station and learned how to use the recording equipment there. And uh, what I found was that I really loved the music, but I wasn't sure about the commerciality of, uh, of radio. Um, and because it's, it's really based around commercials and the music is secondary, uh, for most commercial radio as it was at that time. So, uh, I got into the music side of it and, uh, that eventually brought me to, um, uh, San Francisco uh, where I took a job as a, a starting position in a studio called Bear West and I wound up recording my own band in the late night hours uh, at Vera West. And um, with doing that, a couple people that heard the the uh, recordings uh, said, hey, you know, I like what you did with that. Will you record my band? So I kind of stepped into the production role right away where um, I could direct the musicians uh, to... Um, to uh, get better performances um, and d- direct the recording a- in a certain way. Um, uh, so so that was how I started, and it just kind of went from there. I moved from San Francisco to Los Angeles when um, I had an opportunity. At one, one of the bands I had produced in San Francisco um, – called the Sea Hags, uh, was, um, was signed by a big record label. It was Chrysalis Records. Uh, and, and when that happened, I thought, this is my big opportunity. I'm going to do a big major label record. But as it turned out, uh, they got the budget and went to Los Angeles and worked with a, uh, a producer named Mike Clink, who had just finished the, the, um, Guns N' Roses record. And I couldn't compete with that. And I realized that I couldn't be in San Francisco and have a career in uh, recording the way I wanted it. So then I uh, moved to to Los Angeles and I started there. Uh, But it took a while to get going in Los Angeles. When you first move to a new place, you have to uh, get uh, a a foothold in the, in uh, the community there, the, the industry there. Um, so it took a couple years before um, before I got the right uh, doors open to get a starting position in a in a good studio there, and that uh, uh, was Larrabee Sound, um, and that's where I started working with Prince, and that's where I um, connected with uh, other people that would lead me to Tool and uh, um, Rick Rubin and. Uh, my other clients that uh, that really helped me along. Okay, that's I, that's fascinating. Did did you along the way? Do you have any mentors of note? Anybody who sort of I don't know showed you the ropes or or introduced you to new equipment or new ways of doing things? Well, I have to say, Rick Rubin was a big influence on how I record. I I had been producing for a while before I started working with Rick, but he has a certain way of of um, conducting a recording session, which is fascinating and inspiring. Um, I came from the, the side of recording where I'm the, handling the technical 
uh, equipment uh, and uh, actually, you know, changing the equalization on the microphones and setting up and plugging everything in. And uh, But Rick Rubin doesn't do anything like that. What he does is he takes uh, the... Uh, the band or the, the musicians and he decides what songs the, those musicians will play. And then he hires the people to, to record it. That would be me, uh, in some, in some instances. Uh, and then he would, um, decide where the recording would take place. So he put all of us, he put the songs, the band, the recording crew in a studio somewhere. And then he'd say, okay, go. And then he would check in on it every once in a while to see how we were doing. And the fascinating thing is his, his choices of songs, uh, came from the, uh, perspective of a true music fan. So, um, I started doing that type of, of, um, uh, of production too, where when I come and uh, start with a band, I ask them for um, for as many songs as they can give me. Let's say we're, we're, we want to record 10 songs. Well, I'd like them to present 60 songs to me, and then we're going to pick the best 10 songs. That's basically how Rick works, too. I think he'll have an, an artist come up with 300 songs before he'll record 15 songs, you know. Yeah. Um, there's other, other specific techniques that Rick taught me too. Uh, I just think that he's a, a great, one of the, one of the great producers. Yeah. Awesome. Um, I'm also really interested in sort of the, the trajectory that you took. So how does one specifically you <laughs> go from mixing and engineering to producing records and then specifically also in your case, then becoming an author, writer, and artist? So what, what was that trajectory like? Well, I think it, you know, like I, uh, like I described, uh, I kind of stepped into production, um, from the beginning and, uh, it was kind of a natural thing because, um, I love art and that would be my first passion. Uh, but, um, when, when I'm working with a, a, a musician on their music, it's their music. It's not my art. It's their art. So, uh, I can detach from it and I, and it's easier for me to not be emotionally involved in, in their, in that art because it's their art and I'm helping them realize it. Uh, my own art, it took, uh, maybe it took, you know, 40 years to realize how, uh, I could do my own art. And that's really where I'm at right now. I, um, I love illustration. I love painting, but I have never really spent the time on, on uh, honing that craft because it is very personal. And, um, so, uh, I'm just learning about that now. And, and actually the project I'm working on now is a book project for Hal Leonard which is a technical music book, actually. It's about recording, but I get to illustrate it and write it. And so this is a a whole new thing for me. And I'm really excited about it because um, 
I can really express myself without someone coming in and saying, you know, well, we haven't gotten to the editing stage yet, but I think that um, the illustrations are going to fly maybe. And uh, it, and it's a fun book. It's uh, I get to be goofy and I've had uh, some, gr- I have some great stories and I've uh, talked to other producers and engineers who also have great recording stories that I'll be sharing in the book. So uh, it's a different world now. Yeah, and so this is recording unhinged, right? The book's called. That's me. Yeah. Uh, okay, and so so what's the process like there? Are I know I, I read that you were interviewing other uh, people in the industry for it. So was there anything that surprised you about this process, or or as you talked to your colleagues in the industry as you were going along? Uh, well, I am surprised that there's so much of this type of recording going on that you never hear about. Uh, the type of things that I'm talking about in my personal experience um, with uh, recording was that I uh, I've done some crazy things in <laughs> to, to get a performance. Uh, one time we took a, um, a, an old piano. This was on the Tool record, the Undertow record. We took an old piano and mic'd it up in a studio uh, and. Uh, and got some sledgehammers and uh, shotguns and shot it, <laughs> smashed it up and recorded the whole thing and then incorporated that into the record. Uh, another time, I think we dragged some some um, uh, amplifiers and uh, guitars up onto a cliff overlooking the ocean and we set up some microphones and uh, got uh, a f- the guitars to feedback and recorded them being tossed off the cliff. Uh, (laughs) So there's these crazy stories and I started writing them all down. And then I started asking other people, well, tell me about your stories. And surprisingly, they had some incredible stories. Uh, Bob Ezrin uh, recorded Peter Gabriel and uh, uh, to get him to, uh, really give a great performance, he wound up duct taping Peter to the wall. <laughs> you know, uh, there's other stories where uh, the producers have um, the singers stand on ladders so that they are so busy worrying about falling off the ladder, they are not thinking about their voice, you know. So suddenly they give a much better performance that way. Um, there's all kinds of fun little stories about that and um, and I'm also describing the techniques uh, with illustrations and photographs. So it's it's a it's a fun process. And, and so now my day is uh, I get up, I come down to the studio, and in my office I've got a big drafting table with the computer monitors, and I, I decide. Let's see today. Today my drawing will be um, how to shoot a piano. <laughs> <laughs> and I already know how it's going to be laid out, and uh, and probably, hopefully, by the end of the day, I'll have have it illustrated. But the, yeah, I just finished a a very important illustration called uh, "How to Mike a Chicken." Uh, I watched and, that video on your website. Did you see it? I yeah. did. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, this is from experience. I have Mike a Chicken and recorded Chicken actually a couple different times. So I thought I would illustrate the proper way of miking a chicken from my experience because I am an expert at it. 
So, uh, yeah, I'm having a great deal of fun with this. And, I'm, and it's also touching a different side of my creative, my creative self because I get to illustrate it for the first time. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, the chicken video was something else. I don't think. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think I've ever seen a chicken uh, being recorded for for uh, musical purposes. Uh, but s- speaking of uh, chickens and tool, you have worked with a pretty broad range of artists, including, like you said, Prince, uh, System of a Down, Tom Petty, uh, also Johnny Cash. W- have there been any notoriously big personalities that you worked with? Any times you might have been nervous or just sort of felt, um, what's the word, starstruck by anybody you've worked with? Anybody took you by surprise? Oh, boy, plenty. Uh, you could imagine coming into a studio with, with, uh, Johnny Cash and meeting him for the first time. And he was, was a wonderful, gentle soul, very tall and imposing and wearing black, of course. And, uh, those sessions were really special because it was Johnny, who you like immediately. And, uh, and then Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers was his backup band and, I'd worked with them before, and they are great people. Um, uh, then uh, we had Lindsey Buckingham and Mick Fleetwood sit in on some sessions, and Marty Stewart, who's a country uh, hero, and he came and sat in on sessions. And then, holy cow, we had Carl Perkins come in, and we recorded him. And then Johnny's uh, wife, June Carter Cash, came in and recorded on some tracks. Um, other visitors, it was like... Every day I would turn my head to see who's in the room because I'm busy at the console, you know. And I'd turn my head around to see who's sitting on the couch. And it was some other star every day. It was like Anthony Kiedis from Red Hot Chili Peppers was there one day. and uh, You know, it's just, it, it went on and on and on. Um, so that was exciting. Every day was exciting working um, with those people. Um, and then there were some very challenging artists uh Prince, for instance, I could say he's challenging and, uh, uh, but so rewarding working with Prince because I would find myself, uh, in this, in, in a control room with him only is just Prince and I, and he could play every instrument in the room. So I would just have everything ready and plugged in and he would reach for a guitar or he would reach for a keyboard and I would have it recording and he would, play those instruments and be dancing at the same time. <laughs> it was incredible. It was like my own personal show. Uh, so um, every minute was was great there too, but very intimidating, you know. Uh, but when you when you realize that they're just people and they're just being creative, you know, they, they kind of wears off after a little while. Um, but yeah, it's exciting to meet your heroes. And sometimes you don't ever want to meet your heroes because... It turns out that they're just people. So, you know, if you have this fantasy about them, that goes, that will go away. Yeah. Well, as a, as an engineer or as a producer, how do you shift your gears to work with such different people and such different artists? And, and how do you get them to sort of do what you hope they'll do? Or is it just purely an, uh, a thing of like, I'm stepping back and letting them do what they want to do? Well, you have to approach each project differently uh, not every every technique works with everyone 
So, uh, I have to be a fan. Uh, that's the, that's the bottom line. And this is what I learned from Rick Rubin is you just have to be a fan of the music. And there's great music in every genre. And if it moves you emotionally, then, uh, then it's really easy to, uh, help that artist, uh, to do their best. So that's, that's the trick. I think you just have to be a fan and, and adapt to whatever situation comes up. Some artists need a lot of help and some artists need no help at all. And they are, they have everything together, which is some, sometimes uh, dangerous too, because they'll come in and they'll say, I have the 10 songs that we will be recording and they have it all planned out. Well, I might listen to those songs and think, wow, geez, why are you recording this song? This is, this is a second tier song. There's better songs in you. I might say that to them. They may be offended and say, you don't know what you're talking about. And we're, we're recording these songs. Well, I have to, I have to also like just understand that that it is there. It's their music. And, uh, and, and accept the fact that, uh, uh, they know better than I do as far as what their music is about. But I'll be a fan and I'll make my own judgments about it and uh, let them know that's my job. Well, how do you balance that, those sort of different wills and those different strengths um, in terms of the sound you want versus the sound they want? I mean, obviously, they're the artist, but if you're producing, how do you, how do you balance that? Well, you know, I'll tiptoe into those situations carefully uh, I will uh, if there's any pushback from them I'll say look let's just record it this way just try it try it and see what it sounds like and I'll get them to to do the parts uh, and then we'll take another listen at it and then perhaps they convince me that yeah um, I was not right this is not the right thing to do um but some sometimes it turns out that they listen to the parts recorded and think, "Hey, actually, this does work." So uh, there's a, an example. Just the, last week, um, I recorded an artist locally named Matt Hill, and uh, I heard on a, one of his songs, I heard uh, a strings a string section, and. Uh, so he allowed me to record the strings on my own. Uh, and I did a, a beautiful string section on it. I thought the arrangement was fantastic. And I sent him a rough mix of it and he did not like it. And I was shocked. I was like, what? You know, this is fantastic. What are you talking about? Well, uh, it was, it was the perspective, uh, that he took there, which was correct. That the, the strings overwhelmed the song. And so what we did was we pulled back down the strings at, so that they were just, uh, a hint in the background in a, in a kind of a, uh, out of focus way. Uh, and suddenly the strings work and they work for me and they work for him. So, uh, so I have to be careful to listen to the artist and to realize that they they have uh, a different perspective and that and that's something to really consider it's not my music you know but i'll do my best to really bring out the the the, uh, the to showcase the song 
And we'll get back to our conversation with Sylvia Massey just after this quick break. Well, in terms of the the long hours and the hard work that you put into engineering or producing a record, have you ever had any trouble getting credit where credit's due, whether that means just not having your hard work recognized or literally not being credited properly on a record? Well, back when I started, that was always an issue. Uh, I did uh, work on an Aerosmith track, uh, the song uh, Take Me to the Other Side. And, um, I, I think I did get a credit, but not, uh, not the type of credit, um, that, I uh, I should have, um, on, a, on the other hand, there were projects like the Prince projects where he makes you bust your ass, you know, but then he credits you really well. Uh, so I actually got mixing credit, uh, co-mixing credit on a, on a project that I, I, uh, my, my contribution was minimal, um, which was great. You know, I think he's very generous with credits. Um, but when you're starting out, those, the, these are big issues, which are even more challenging now because it's difficult to, uh, even find credits on anything now. I mean, you really have to search and hope cross, cross your fingers that, uh, the credits that you see online are correct. Yeah. And this is uh, something else that we're working with, uh, working f- towards, um, through NARIS, which is the National Academy of Recording Arts and Sciences, uh, is to make sure that the engineers and producers are credited, um, in a way that it's easily found and it's correct. Um, there's a advocacy programs through NARIS uh, to get this done. Um, I was uh, on the steering committee, committee for the producers and engineers wing uh, at NARIS for a while, and I'm still on the advisory board. And I think that anyone uh, who's serious about produ- production uh, or music, uh, doing their own music, recording music, should be a member of NARIS. Okay. Um, but yeah, again, speaking about the hard work that you've put in, you have earned more than 25 gold and platinum records. And so I want to know what your, what was your first and how did this end up affecting your career? Oh, wow. Well, the gold and platinum records are, uh, are awarded for sales. So, uh, a platinum record is, is a million copies sold. A gold record is uh, 500,000 copies sold. So I think my first gold record was a Prince record, the Prince song Cream, which was a remix that did very well. Uh, and uh, it was exciting getting that record. It just it came in the mail, and I opened it up and had uh, pictures taken and sent it to my mom. <laughs> Um, so yeah, it's very exciting. Uh, of course, having a record do well, uh, with sales, um, uh, is what kickstarts your career. So, uh, for me, that was this silly record called Green Jello, 
the band changed their name to Green Jelly after General Foods, I think, uh, forced them to change the name. They didn't want to be associated with a horrible rock band. Uh, but uh, it was a joke. It was kind of a joke record that we did for fun. Um, and it sold, uh, it sold up to a million copies, I think, worldwide, definitely, uh, with a song called Three Little Pigs. And, uh, that was the one that really kickstarted my career. It was funny because when I was in Los Angeles, after uh, I I made the move and I finally got a job at Larrabee Sound, and uh, I had been working there and and had done a lot of work with some major artists, Prince included. But um, it wasn't until that Green Jello uh, started bubbling under that I realized that uh, this was uh, going to break my career because uh, the studio manager Kevin Mills came into. This, into the control room one day with a billboard magazine and he pointed at the hot 100 singles chart and there was three little pigs on it number 24 he says you you he said you don't understand what this means and i actually i didn't realize what that meant and that what it meant is that i i have a career i had a career uh, and so one one hit record and all the producer managers start calling and here I'd been knocking on their door over and over again like hey look I've got this body of work and I've worked with Prince and blah 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 but it's not until you produce something that's on those charts uh, that they're that everybody wants to represent you and suddenly I got to pick the best manager in Los Angeles his name was Frank McDonough and uh, McDonough represented me for um, a good 15, uh, more than 15 years uh, from that moment. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, well, I was wondering if any of the bands that you worked with, the artists that you worked with, ever reacted differently, whether positively or negatively, to working with a woman? And was there anything also with other producers or even record label execs that maybe they acted differently because you were a woman? I think that uh, when I started out, um, that uh, people would come in and they might watch their language in front of me or something, you know, like, uh, you know, I think that's pretty much it, though. Uh, once they got to know me and realized that I curse like a sailor, that they, they stopped being shy around me. Um, so th- I think that... Uh, I think it's a difficult job for anyone, men or women. Uh, and, uh, uh, so I don't, I really have not felt any kind of discrimination in the studio. However, I am surprised there's not more women doing it. In fact, there's, it's, it's dramatic how few women are actually in the, in the uh, industry. Why do you think that there are so few? I saw one estimate that maybe 5% of record producers and engineers are women. Why, why do you think that is? I think it's actually less than that. Um, I have an idea of why that is, and uh, it has to do with human biology more than anything. And, and it's just because women naturally gravitate into jobs where they can have social interaction with people, uh, and uh, and 
and it may be as basic as that. Um, I, I, I wish that there were more women in the, in the industry. And actually, I'm, uh, I don't know what happened to me <laughs> as far as that goes. I kind of like being in a cave, um, by myself for the most part. Um, and, and I just love music. So, um, those natural, uh, gravitations didn't apply. Um, but I think, yeah, most women are too smart. I think most women want to, um, to be able to interact with people and to meet people. And, and so they have different career paths. Uh, it takes so long to get started in, in a career in recording and you have to really do 14 hour days for, for, um, 10 years straight, um, taking every job, barely getting paid. And uh, it's just too long to wait, you know, for most people. Did you, when you were in college, for instance, working at the radio station, did you know other young women who were interested in the same things you were? I'm, I'm just wondering if there's some sort of pipeline leak. Uh, that, you know, Kristen and I talk about on the podcast a lot, especially in terms of science jobs, technology jobs, things like that. Uh, we always talk about the pipeline of where women and young girls, too, start out being super interested in maybe a science or a technology field. And then as they get older, they tend to sort of fall out or fall behind. And have you noticed that in the in the industry you're in? There are a lot of people that, uh, a lot of women that are interested and they do go to school, uh, and they, um, uh, they, but like I say, it takes so long. I think they get discouraged after five years of not making any money and being cooped up in a studio. Uh, so yeah, I, I absolutely understand where they go. For me, um, there was a leak. And that was in San Francisco. There was a studio called the Automat. And when I first started out and when I first moved to San Francisco, um, I knew that there were, there was recording going on there and they had, um, all the big acts. It was Santana. It was Jefferson Airplane. They were all recording in this place. And I'd sit out in the parking lot across the street with a friend who was the parking lot attendant. Uh, and I'd watch the engineers go in and out of the studio in the, it, during the day. And I noticed that there were, the, there were two women that worked on staff there. One was Maureen Droney and one was Leslie Ann Jones. And I knew who they were and I'd see them walk in and I knew that Maureen was recording Santana and I knew that Leslie Ann was doing some other equally, um, uh, high profile project. And for me, so, so seeing that, I thought, well, these girls, this is, this is what these, this is what women do. The women go and they take these jobs, they're technical jobs. And, uh, I, and certainly if they can do it, I can do it. So that really inspired me to, um, to continue. Leslie Ann Jones today runs Skywalker Sound, uh, the studios there in, in Marin County. Uh, uh, outside of San Francisco, that's George Lucas's place. And, uh, and Maureen Droney, 
uh, is the head of the peony wing for the National Academy of Recording Arts and Sciences. So she's done really well, but she's not recording. Uh, Leslie Ann is recording every day, but it's, it's important to have those, those people who inspire you to continue. As far as women go, you need to have, um, these role models who say to just to let you know that, yeah, if this is uh, a direction you want to go in, then absolutely the, it's something that you can do. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, you've mentored a fair number of, of young engineers yourself. What advice do you have for girls or boys who are interested in pursuing a career at the control board? Well, uh, I met with Susan Rogers recently for the book. She was uh, an engineer for Prince and he, all his early work and, and the, some of the greatest recordings that he ever has done. Um, and uh, she had some very wise uh, advice. And that was, if you're getting into recording, diversify and specialize in one thing or a couple things that that are, are um, particular. Like for her, she was a tech. She could fix equipment. So as well, as well, she was a recording engineer, but she also could fix anything. So there was added value in having her around. If you're going up against uh, 20 other people for a job, um, then you need an edge. So, uh, you know, if you're a programmer, if you can program music, that's a huge advantage. If you're a great background singer, that's a good advantage. Uh, if you can, in fact, create websites, you're going to find that uh, musicians will want to have you on their team. So you'll probably get more production gigs that way or engineering gigs that way. Um, so there's a lot of different avenues you can take that will give you added value um, when you're competing against uh, a large pool of people. So that's one thing. I thought Susan Rogers had some great advice, though, with uh, with that. Well, what do you tell the young engineers that you work with, especially if they get discouraged or if they're, you know, starting to wonder if this is what's right for them or if they're just looking for sort of a way to continue in the industry? What do you what do you tell them? Well, that's that's sometimes difficult. You know, I'll, I'll always say, you know, do just stick with it, stick with it, stick with it. But at some point, uh, you have to make these life choices and go in a different direction if that's if that's truly what you need to do. Honestly, in the the uh, three, five years, or uh, the, let's say since 2000 when I started my own studio up here in, in uh, Northern California, um, I've only really run into four engineers that I thought should do this forever. You know, it, it, it takes such dedication and you have to have such good hearing and understanding of music. There's very few people that have everything it takes. Um, and I can, I can name them on one hand, you know, the people that I absolutely trust a hundred percent with any project and they're, they're the best. Um, 
because I think that you need to know more than just engineering. You need to be able to mix and mixing is the hardest thing to do. Uh, you have to take everything that you've re- recorded and blend it uh, to, uh, to, to where you have depth of field and you have dynamics in the music and uh, you capture the essence of the song and the artist. Um, and that just seems to be the hardest thing to do. So uh, there are women that uh, have come through the, the studio. Uh, one in particular, Lori Castro, is an engineer. She works in Los Angeles now, and uh, she took a, a slightly different direction. She went out of the music recording field and into film and soundtrack work. And she's doing really well right now, uh, working on uh, movies like uh, Transformers and uh, other big movies. So, so you can you can adjust the direction that you're going into to keep your feet in uh, uh, to keep your feet in the keep your feet wet, keep keep in the business. So, yeah. uh, but there are opportunities out there. Um, well, this might be a controversial question, but I've, I've seen interviews with different, uh, women producers, engineers, mixers who say that yes, women do bring something different to the table, whether that's a certain sound or a certain, um, idea about the way things should be. And then I've seen other people say, no, 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 women, no, they're just like men. It's all the same and it's the work that matters. Do you, what, what side of the fence do you fall on? Are, are you in the middle? What do you think? Oh, I think men and women are vastly different creatures. <laughs> <laughs> and in fact, you're right. I think they bring different qualities to, to the work. And there's a, a one thing in particular um, that I think that women bring in a, in a recording session when musicians come in that uh, being a woman, it can immediately disarm the guys because they're not, you know, there's a thing that happened when men are together. There's like, you know, some kind of, uh, strutting or whatever, you know, like cock fights or whatever. I don't know. But with, with women, it's like it, they, they feel more comfortable to be themselves. I think you get better performances. Uh, it, so it's, uh, it's instantly a better situation. Uh, I personally think, you know, yeah. I guess it depends on the woman, but uh, <laughs> but I think it, when you're working with men in particular, that um, that uh, the uh, being a woman uh, has an advantage. Did you have you disarmed anybody in your career that that you are aware of? Oh, so many. I mean, because you, you can imagine these guys coming in and they're all burly. Because I work with hard music, you know. I've worked with Slayer and System of a Down and uh, a you know, a bunch of really hard rockers and they come in, they've got piercings and they're covered with tattoos and they got, you know, collared hair and they're wearing leather and they're stomping around, you know, and, uh, and they're really intimidating creatures. And, uh, so yeah, I have a lot of fun with them right away. I'll, I'll, uh, disarm the session entirely. And, uh, uh, you know, uh, just throw a chair or whatever it takes to, <laughs> to, to you know, get them loosened up. We have fun. Uh, yeah. Um, well, so 
I'm interested in your take on what's next for the industry, but also what's next for you? What are, what are you working on also? Well, this is my first chance. You know, I, I did mention the fact that I divorced and moved the studio because of all that. Uh, so this is my chance to really do what I want. And what I want to do is write a book. And then I've got another book right after that. And then I've got another book right after that. And I want to paint. And I'm in a situation now where I can uh, do a little recording, paint a picture, take a trip. Uh, I'll do some workshops in Europe. Uh, basically, I don't know if this is retirement. I don't know. I've been spoiled my whole life, I think, by by doing this This. Uh, by being in this industry, uh, it's not work, you know. It's uh, it's inspiration every day. So, so now I'm just going to write and draw and paint and record music and uh, and have fun. Um, so that's what's coming up next. I do have several projects in the in the, um, in the in the works. As far as music recording projects, I've got a, um, a an Australian band uh, coming up this uh, fall, Filthy Lucre, and uh, another band called Decades that I'll be working with. Um, and I'll be in Dresden this summer recording um, two artists in a castle. Uh, and uh, in Bergen, Norway, I'll be going this summer also to record another project. Um, yeah, life is good. <laughs> Sounds lucky, like it. <laughs> lucky, lucky, lucky me. <laughs> well, yeah. Sylvia, I've, I've asked you a ton of questions, um, and, and that's about all I had for you. But is there anything that you feel like we didn't touch on, whether it's about women in the industry, whether it's about your career, um, just about being a music producer, anything that you feel like we didn't touch on? Well, uh, if you really want to be a music producer and you're a woman, here's what happens is you'll find yourself 37 years old and you'll be having to make that hard choice, career or family, and just make that choice carefully. That's all I can say. You know, yeah. I mean, uh, I have no children. I missed my, I missed that part of, uh, of, uh, life as a woman. And, uh, I have a whole world of children though. I've worked with 400 bands and they, I have to say that they're kind of, uh, those records and those, those songs are, are my children and these paintings are my children. And, um, so I want to give to the world that way too, but, uh, but boy, uh, the, being a woman is a, is a challenge, uh, you know, when, when you have the pull of wanting to, um, express yourself and creatively, um, it's a trick to do it and have the family too. So that's the hard truth. Yeah. Have you encountered other producers who feel the same way? Other women in the industry who feel similarly? Well, you know, that's a kind of a personal thing that I haven't really uh, talked to with other women, you know. Mm-hmm. There's so few women. Uh, when we get together, we don't really talk about that. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, uh, 
I think it's an important thing to to talk about with with the young up and comings. It's just don't miss your chance if that's important to you. Just don't miss your chance. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think yeah, that's great advice in any industry, in any job. Sure, of course. Um, well, so Sylvia, tell our listeners where they can learn more about you and about your upcoming book. I have a website, www.sylviamassey.com, and that is spelled S-Y-L-V-I-A-M-A-S-S-Y. And uh, on that website is uh, information about the book uh, and about uh, the studio here and other projects I'm working on or have worked on. It's a fun website full of photos, but the, the fun things can be this book. It's coming out on Hal Leonard, uh, Hal Leonard Publishing, um, January 2016. And, uh, it's called Recording Unhinged and it's unconventional recording techniques. Very unconventional. <laughs> Including chickens. Chickens, yes. <laughs> and shooting pianos. Yeah. yeah. Well, fabulous. Thank you so much, Sylvia. It's been such a pleasure talking to you. Well, thank you so much to Sylvia Massey and to you, Caroline, for chatting with her. Um, I know that we have a lot of musicians and just basic music fans in our audience. So I'm looking forward to hearing everybody's feedback on this. And also be sure to keep an eye out in 2016 for her forthcoming book, Recording Unhinged, which she is writing and also illustrating. What can't Sylvia Massey do, Caroline? Pretty sure she can do everything. Just about. So, Caroline, what was your favorite thing that you talked to Sylvia about? Well, I mean, I loved getting her perspective on the gender aspect of her job and of the industry because it's it's pretty pronounced. I, I kind of, uh, to be honest with you, I didn't expect her to talk about such a pronounced effect of the role of gender, um, whether positive or negative. Uh, so I really liked her take on that. But I think, as you can tell from listening to me giggle with her about it, uh, really loved hearing about how you mic a chicken and, and prepare a chicken for its musical debut. Well, it's also good for us to know that information for when we have our first <laughs> uh, chicken guest on the show. Something for listeners to look forward to, because chickens... You know, they deal with sexism in the hen house as well. That's right. All that overcrowding. Yes. Yeah. Who's going to lay the eggs? <laughs> you know? Well, hens, because that's biology. <laughs> right. Well, listeners, if you want to learn more about Sylvia, head over to her website, Sylvia Massey. That's Massey with no E dot com. And we now want to hear from you. Do we have any record producers in our audience listening, we want to know momstuff at howstuffworks.com is our email address. You can also tweet us at momstuffpodcast and message us on Facebook. And we've got a couple of messages to share with you right now. here from Owen in regards to our transgender TV episodes. He says, I'm a transgender man myself, though I hate feeling like, like I have to preface any trans feminist queer related opinion with that piece of information. I noticed a few times during the podcast you used male pronouns when referring to transgender women pre-transition or used phrases like a cisgender man transitioning to a transgender woman and so on. 
I can't speak for everybody, of course, but I know that I prefer the retroactive application of preferred pronouns. For example, when he was younger, he used to. Because regardless of my physical appearance or how others perceived me at the time, my gender identity has always been as it is now. And I could certainly never describe myself as having been cisgender because I've always been transgender. If I had to refer to the difference in my experience pre- and post-transition, I generally use the phrase, when I was perceived as female, though it's rare I use any phrase that requires me to refer to such an unhappy time in my life and does so in terms so close to the very cause of that unhappiness. Being trans always has been part of my experience, even when others didn't know it and I didn't have the words to describe it. Those two are part of the experience after all, not having the words, in some cases keeping a secret as yet not even clearly defined to oneself, and so on. So I've always been transgender with all that entails. It would be a little like referring to someone as having been straight up until they came out to you as gay. I hope that makes sense. Owen goes on to say, other than that, I thoroughly enjoyed the episode and thank you for the excellent work as always. I look forward to hearing part two and more discussion with the wonderful Raquel Willis. Thank you for reading my two cents and thank you for providing those two cents, Owen. Yeah, and, and that's a really great thing to point out, which has come up a lot with the media coverage about Caitlyn Jenner, because the media, a lot of, a, a lot of media outlets, have been describing her as Caitlyn Jenner, formerly Bruce Jenner, whereas the the correct way to say it is Caitlyn Jenner, formerly known as Bruce Jenner, because it's not like it is an entirely different person. Um, so, Owen, thanks so much for pointing that out and making us all more aware of the way that we use our language, because language is powerful. Well, I've got another correction-y letter from Elsie, Subject line, vagina having folks. She writes, Hello, this message is one I've wanted to send you for a while. I thought it was particularly relevant in light of the topic of your podcast on trans visibility in the media. I've noticed that in your podcast and in the advertising you deliver, you often refer to all people who have vaginas slash a uterus and all people who can be pregnant as women. This made me cringe quite a bit in the Baby Bump series and in your Me Undies ads. It's great to have an explicitly feminist podcast out there, but part of that needs to include supporting your trans listeners. Assuming that all vagina-holding people identify as women is thoughtless at the least, and at worst could be seen as transphobic, which I know you aren't. I hope you'll think about this and correct your language. I think the podcast is great and would love to be able to share it with my trans friends without having to add a caveat. And Elsie, thank you for pointing this out to us in the way we speak about it. I would also like to direct you to the Stuff Mom Never Told You video all about this called Men Can Get Pregnant Too. Because uh, in a conversation about uh, abortion rights, reproductive rights, um, it was a very cis-focused conversation I was having. And some YouTube fans pointed that out to me. So it is something that we are cognizant of. And we appreciate, though, reminders to stay on our toes about that. So if you have things you need us to stay on our toes about, you can email us. Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our address. You can also tweet us at MomStuffPodcast or message us on Facebook. And for links to all of our social media, as well as all of our blogs, videos, and podcasts, head on over to StuffMomNeverToldYou.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 